This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Hi, this is Erin Hart, your host of the Gender Justice Brief. Welcome back to the podcast. So this week, we are also taking a little bit of a different spin on things. Um, We recorded a virtual briefing yesterday with some of our closest supporters and partners, sort of unpacking the legislative session and what we accomplished and what we're thinking about ahead. So you'll hear on the podcast today, Senator Erin May Quaid in her senator role, She is also a staff member at Gender Justice as Special Projects Advisor. You will hear me, of course. You'll hear Megan Peterson, our Executive Director, and you will hear Monica Meyer, our Political Director. So we hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, Also, sometimes we reference cute babies in the Zoom, uh, and that is because we had some special guests from recording at home. Thanks so much, and we'll see you back next week. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Megan Peterson. I'm the executive director at Gender Justice, and I use she, her pronouns. The word I would use and hope my fellow panelists don't get mad at me for using it is transformative because it has been a truly transformative session on many fronts, and we're going to talk about some of them. Awesome. Monica. Hey, everyone. So excited you're all here to be with you today. I use she and they pronouns. And I have been, I liked transformative too. That's what I thought. But I'm going to say, I'm going to pull out an old phrase and say it's time. It's our time. And it's time Minnesota was a campaign a long time ago that passed or not, we passed our non-discrimination law. And I love that there's some of the issues we've been working on for a really long time and some are newer and a lot's getting done and it's exciting. And Erin McQuaid, welcome. Hey, everybody. I'm Erin McQuaid. I use to your pronouns. I'm state senator from Senate District 56. And I transformative would have been my words. So I'll just say historic or seven generational change. That will be, be mine. And I just also wanted to note for folks that Senator McQuaid is part of the staff of, of Gender Justice and is here today and wearing her senator hat, so to speak. Yeah. All the work I do at Gender Justice has nothing to do with this work. So I'm appearing as state senator. And so glad to be here. Super happy to have you here. Okay. The first part of our panel, we're going to talk about reproductive freedom. As we approach the one-year anniversary later this month of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and took away the federal right to abortion, let's start with the Beyond Roe agenda that we introduced on the fateful day, June 24th, very coincidentally, but fateful day of the Dobbs decision. So Megan, I'm gonna turn it to you for this. Can you talk about the Beyond Roe agenda for Minnesota and how it formed, informed our abortion-related work at the session this year? So yes, it ended up being co-released with the Reproductive Freedom Legislative Caucus on what turned out to be the day Dobbs came down. So we were happy to have already reserved the press conference room. But the agenda really came together before, obviously before the decision came down, but after the hearing at the Supreme Court, when it was like really clear, the writing was on the wall. This is where this court is headed. 
we really felt with our coalition partners in Unrestricted Minnesota that it was important for us to lay out a map, a roadmap, um, a vision for what what Minnesota needed to do in order to meet the moment, knowing that we were surrounded by states who were going to ban abortion or already had abortion bans on their books, and that more people were going to need to get care. And also knowing that the Dobbs decision was going to be a moment of reckoning for the public, where what we knew to be a sleeping majority, maybe, but definitely a majority of people who support reproductive health rights and justice and abortion access, a lot of those people were going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Just what is going on? What happened? And, and that that per, that even though it was a moment of tragedy, it was also a moment of opportunity to really turn the tide politically in terms of the public conversation and in terms of policy. We wanted to be prepared for that. And we were also inspired by other states who were putting out similar plans. So California put out a future of abortion roadmap. Massachusetts, who we borrowed the name from, actually put out also put out a Beyond Row agenda for Massachusetts. And we looked at what they were putting together, looked at our own kind of wish list for policy changes and interventions and compiled our own that we felt was the top priorities for Minnesota. Do you want me to go over what those were? <laughs> yeah. Describe for us the three buckets in the agenda. So the three kind of buckets of policy priorities we put together were first to repeal restrictions, which probably comes as no surprise to all of you. It's literally the name of the Unrestricted Minnesota campaign and the lawsuit that gender justice had been moving forward to remove the state's abortion restrictions. But even though we anticipated the court would end up in joining those laws, which they did just a few weeks later after Dobbs on July 11th. We knew it was really important to also get them off the books because you could see what was happening in our in our neighbor state to the east, Wisconsin, where old laws that hadn't been in effect for a long time but remained on the books were coming back to life post-Roe. And so we we're like, let's just use this time and this opportunity to really remove the restrictions from the books entirely. And then the second bucket of work was moving to proactively protect patients and providers. We knew that there were likely to be attacks on both patients and providers from states that were moving to ban abortion. And we wanted to make really shore up the protections and the rights here. And then the last bucket, which frankly is like, a long-term, long-standing, and is really reflected a little bit in the name of Beyond Row, is that we knew that we had a lot of work to do to improve access and affordability to abortion care, and that existed even before Row went down. Row has never been enough for everyone to get access to the care they need, and we, we had this opportunity to also reiterate and really push the envelope even further on what opportunities there were through policy to help expand access and make sure everyone who needs an abortion can get one. So that made up the sort of structure of a lot of our reproductive freedom work at the legislature. Now I'm going to turn it to Senator May Quaid, the author of my personal favorite bill at the legislative session, which was the Reproductive Freedom Codification. We know that this bill is about repealing abortion restrictions, but also so much more. And I was hoping you could walk us through the bill, the motivations behind it and where provisions of the bill ultimately ended up at the end of session. Yeah, so the Reproductive Freedom Codification Act, Senate File 70, House File 91, it was really interesting to go into 
this session, having worked as an advocate on the outside for four years, like I had, I looked at every single law related to abortion in the state of Minnesota. And let me tell you, um, none of them were there for good. All of them had been put into place by anti-abortion lawmakers with the help of anti-abortion organizations nationally who had done the work to overturn Roe v. Wade, who had done the work to ban abortion in other states. They were just like moving at a like gentler, weavy pace in the state of Minnesota. And we put them all into a bill called the Reproductive Freedom Codification Act. All these laws that get in the way of our reproductive rights, health and justice, get in the criminalized pregnancy outcomes, criminalized patients, criminalized providers. And it really, this was the act of putting together a bill of undoing 50 years worth of anti-abortion work in the state of Minnesota. And it went through all of the hearings. And I thank you to anybody who came and testified or anybody who wrote a letter. It was really meaningful. But what we learned really quickly in the Senate, certainly, where there's a one-seat majority for our reproductive freedom majority, is that the anti-abortion minority had a lot of intentions to just slow everything down. There was a day where we spent three hours debating a bill that had unanimous support at the end. Three hours, three long, arduous hours. And when it came time to vote on a bill that was like really extensive, we were like, you know what, let's just put these into the omnibus bills where they belong. And so most of Senate File 70 or a lot of Senate File 70 ended up in omnibus bills that it was related to removing the criminal, like the felony penalties for providers, 145412. That chapter of law does not exist anymore. I'm so excited it's gone. It was the law that stated abortion is a felony. And look, and then it listed all of these exceptions. Like, that is not a thing. It is treated like all other health care in the state of Minnesota now. There were laws that criminalized miscarriages and mailing, mailing abortion, medication abortion. There was there were just like some really outdated laws. There was fornication, sodomy and adultery crimes that we repealed that were in there, too. It was a really it was a robust bill, most of which was passed in omnibus bills throughout the session. And those are they're just literally gone. They're not blocked. They just are not Minnesota law, which is so amazing. Right. So when your provider provides you health care, the thing they check is like their knowledge and what's appropriate for the patient and what's appropriate in that situation. And they don't have to talk to their lawyers. And that is a wonderful thing in the state of Minnesota where people with URI can get health care without people having to talk to lawyers first. That's just a beautiful, that's their tagline. That's Minnesota. Land of 10,000 likes and reproductive health care without lawyers. Yes. <laughs> Love it. So, Aaron, you mentioned people coming to hearings and what was happening at the legislature. So I wanted to turn it to Monica next, our political director. And you helped, Monica, you helped lead how Unrestrict Minnesota and gender justice showed up at the legislature this year. Can you describe what role our advocacy team played, our organizers, supporters during session, and what did our organizing look like? Did we have a canvas? And where were they? Where were we in the state this session with our folks? Sure. I think that one of the things we try to do is just harness as many humans to connect with their legislators, to, to connect and really organize people to, to show that they support reproductive freedom and then LGBTQ equity and a bunch of other issues. But but we really did that through just good old fashioned, like sending out emails, texts, phone calls, you name it. Also working with the Unrestrict Coalition and really making sure that we are all working together as a coalition and that different organizers and organizations and efforts are all working together just to make sure that our legislators who were elected to work and to, to work to make sure that we have reproductive freedom in Minnesota 
that they had the support they needed to do the right thing. And that's what I always think about. I've been organizing now for a few decades. And I always think that we really want to help them be feel the support and feel the love in the district that that they have, that that they have constituents that have their back, that they know that they're on the right path. And then I feel like it's also that it's really up to just Minnesotans to help legislators also hear their stories and really, I think, not just talk to lobbyists, which I'm a lobbyist, lots of this sort of yes, but and we have good information, but actually hear people's stories about why these policies are so critical and for repealing all the restrictions on abortion, people really dug deep and told their stories, talked about the impact that it would have to really repeal these restrictions. And so I feel like I'm just proud of Minnesotans. I'm proud to be a Minnesotan. I'm proud of our elected officials. But really, we couldn't pass any of the legislation without having thousands of people really take action. I would say the other piece that, that I think is so important is that people, we had a canvas that went out and we targeted some districts where we had legislators who I think were unsure or they were hearing from a lot of people who were opposed to peeling the restrictions, their anti-repro freedom people. And I think so we really made sure that we had a canvas that was going door to door and really talking with people and really encouraging them to like and really, I think, really helping people to get their voice heard by their legislators. So what was fun about that is they had lawn signs. They signed up to be involved in Unrestrict. And then they also connected with their legislators. And that was really important. I believe we had over a thousand people in in kind of districts all over the state, but mostly in St. Cloud and in the suburbs where there were legislators, too, who won by very little, by very few votes. And, And so what I think what we were hearing from people just on the ground is that they were so excited to know that they should contact their legislators. That's always a reminder, too, that we just need to keep helping people know that how to connect and how to have their voice heard. So that's some of the work we did. It was very fun. Yeah, it was. Thank you. And we all got to wear yellow for unrestricted or green for gender justice. Erin, you as a senator, could you speak a little bit to what did constituent engagement look like for you and your colleagues? particularly at this period of time where we had never had a reproductive freedom trisecta in in Minnesota and politicians, our legislators were not used to talking about or voting on abortion. Yeah, so I think the first thing to know, just for this room of people, this Zoom room of people or podcast of people or whoever might be listening to this, is that in Minnesota, depending on how you ask the question, anywhere from like 70% to 77% support reproductive freedom, right? It really depends on what specific question you ask, but it's two thirds of Minnesota. And and that's above 50% in almost every single district in Minnesota, certainly in every reproductive freedom district that, that has a reproductive freedom champion as their senator or representative. And so one of the weird things as an advocate, like I've done trainings the last four years for legislators to remind them of this. But when you are on the other side of it, when you're the one who's receiving the emails or the calls, like the anti-abortion movement, though small, is very organized. And they were very energized by the overturning of Roe v. Wade through the Dobbs decision. But they were very, I think they were really surprised across the country with their losses over and over again in places like Kansas and places like Wisconsin. Like they had lost massively at the ballot box and that has energized them even more. And so even though And I always tell people this too, right? Like 
people who are pro-reproductive freedom are basically saying that's none of my business what other people are doing with their body. And so by their very nature, they're like less likely to get involved in like other people's business at the legislature. And so you hear from that organized one third a million times. And I won my election by 56% of the vote and I had a town hall and every anti-abortion person in my district, I swear, came and they brought those like hideous signs with those like unrealistic fake images and and said horrible things. And I I think part of it is that, again, like the anti-abortion movement, if you ever want a lesson in some of the best misinformation spreading to freak people out, to get them like ginned up, that this is that. And so we did feel that. However, we did feel the pro-reproductive freedom majority of the state as well. And it would show up in some beautiful ways, whether it was like rallies in the rotunda or emails from constituents or letters in the paper or like random people came to my town hall to talk about uh, like parks and trails and would jump in and be like, this is nuts. Like, why are like, it would just be random people who are like, I really don't have a dog in this fight, but I don't really think we should be getting involved in people's uterus. That really did come through. And I think that's part of why it was not like an arduous fight throughout session to do what was the right thing and the thing that was supported by most Minnesotans, which is to ensure that people can make decisions about their own bodies with their providers without the government being involved and without criminalizing providers and patients and pregnancy outcomes. So it felt intense and sometimes hard, probably on our legislative assistants as well, who have to answer the phone and the emails and take the letters. But by and large, like we do feel, we do feel the broad public support, but sometimes it just, after decades of being presented as a 50-50 issue, like you don't feel the two thirds as much as you feel the one third. And so work that you all did came through to help remind us that the two thirds out there who are like, can you just stand up for bodily autonomy? That'd be super great. Thanks. And also, I'll just add, it was brand new to have pro-reproductive freedom majorities. And so everyone was experiencing what it was like to move forward in a real way, proactive policy on these issues. It had never happened before. And really, there hadn't even been much fighting over abortion for a long time, like for more than 10 years. And so there were a lot of new people in the legislature who had never had to talk about abortion with their constituents or on the floor or whatever. So there was just, I think that that meant it was their first interaction with the anti-abortion movement too. Yeah. The first time really like facing their ire. And that I think makes that small majority feel even scarier because they go out of their way to be scary. Except, but with the exception of in the Senate, in our freshman class in my caucus, almost half of the DFL caucus was new members, first termers. And we all cut our teeth on the doors talking about abortion. So it was this like total flip. But you, yeah, all the new people were like, oh, we talked about this all year. And all the folks been there, they're like, oh, yeah, totally. So it was just an interesting flip of what you might expect. But because we all like we came in and the thin margins that Monica was talking about, those all happened in the first term class. And we're like, look, we talked about this at every door. We're good. And so as we look back on session, we on reproductive rights and freedom, we have another couple of minutes to talk about this because there's a lot of other stuff to cover. And we are still digesting the work and what happened at session. But where are some areas that you see our work on reproductive freedom moving ahead for next session? So I just want to give a run through of what got done and what didn't in our agenda. The first bill from the legislature was the Protect Reproductive Options Act. That's the PRO Act that reestablished a fundamental right to all reproductive health care in Minnesota that, you know, had lengthy debates, especially in the Senate, 15 hours worth of debate. And 
every single anti-abortion strategy was offered as an amendment on that bill. And luckily, all of them were voted down, but inevitably will then provide some fodder for the next election, for sure. And then after that, we also succeeded in passing the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act. That's the shield law that protects patients and providers from out-of-state attacks. And then, as Aaron mentioned, the repealers got put into omnibus bills. And I just want to mention, there's so much there that I just want to mention a couple of things that people might not know about. So the majority of that bill was repealing the laws that we challenged in Joby, Minnesota, the lawsuit. Two things from that lawsuit remained in statute. One is the parental notification law. It is enjoined from the lawsuit, but is still on the books technically. There weren't the votes to include that. Also, the requirement for cremation or burial of fetal tissue is both not enjoined and also remains on the books. Um, got a piece yeah. about that. Well, it's only yeah. because there were actually requests to broaden it so that People had options and we got these, this request from a bunch of different books across the spectrum and it's not going to happen. I think we're just going to do the work to make sure that we're writing it in a way that actually fixes it and doesn't and unintentionally create a weird barrier. So that one is to come. But one really important law that was repealed was the ban in Minnesota Care, which is the state's health care program for low-income people who don't qualify for Medicaid. That law was written with a ban on covering abortion. And so that language was removed from Minnesota Care, which is also really important as Minnesota Care becomes the template for a public option in the state. We just needed that language out of there if more people were going to be able to buy into the plan. And then there was also, strangely, a law. The law that establishes the ability of freestanding birth centers to operate included a ban on them offering abortion services at their facilities. And there are other states that have completely holistic birth centers that provide abortion care, prenatal care, birth, all of it. And this was just a politically motivated. It was another place to just exceptionalize abortion. And so now that has also been removed. And then the last big success of the session in this area is we were able to increase reimbursement rates for abortion coverage by 20 percent which hadn't been done. And it was one of those like a little bit in the weeds issues and has been often considered like too politically difficult to move forward. But the reality is, especially as providers need to absorb even more patients coming from out of state, the fact that the Minnesota reimbursement rates are so below the actual cost was putting providers in a really impossible situation. It has long been the case, but like especially now is even more so that the rates had to be increased in order to come closer, still not all the way there yet, but at least come closer to covering the actual cost to providers of providing those services. Yeah, a provider that I spoke with recently, I had no idea about this issue before we started working on it, said that they lose like over $150,000. It was like a significant part of their budget every year because of the re the reimbursement rates. So Thank you for mentioning that. But I want to make sure that we have time to talk about other issues today. So let's pivot to some more issues related to bodily autonomy. Erin, we, we are seeing still so many attacks on trans rights in sports, in schools, access to gender-affirming care. Gender Justice knew years ago when you were advocacy director and before that, that these attacks would happen. What was our involvement with the Trans Refuge Bill and some other related legislation this session? 
Yeah, first with tapping across the country to trans youth in particular, but trans people in general, because it's obviously not just about youth, is really alarming. And it's alarming isn't even the word that begins to touch and broach what's actually happening. It's horrific. It's the erasure, the recloseting, the elimination. That's what they said at CPAC of trans people altogether. In Minnesota, we took a different route. We passed the Trans Refuge Act and that bill. I also was able to chief author that bill. I was really proud of that. It was a wonderful, joyous moment that will protect people who come to Minnesota to access gender-affirming care, to provide gender-affirming care with protections because much like reproductive rights, health and justice, trans liberation is, is tied up in that. And there are states that are seeking to criminalize that care even when they go to a state where it's legal and are provided that state where it's legal from a state where it is legal. And so we we did that shield law, which was great. We also did the Take Pride Act, which I was a co-author on with Senator Claire Hoover-Baton being the chief author in the Senate. And that bill removes, so gender expression, gender identity as protections in a Minnesota human rights law were protected under sexual orientation, which is fine. It worked. We've used that in court and as gender this for years, but it's in the wrong place. And it also had a really offensive reference to pedophilia. Um, we defined gender identity on its own and redefined sexual orientation. And that was wonderful. And gender justice has been working and using that, those definitions and using the Minnesota Human Rights Act for years and being one of the leading organizations working on trans and LGBT issues. There was deep involvement from this organization to make sure that those were well written because a well written law is actually really important and then got across the finish line. So it was both like legal technical support and the community support to make sure that it happened. Is there anything else I'm missing? Oh, oh, Megan, looks like you had a thought. I'm just, I just want to mention that the, I don't know how much it flew under other folks' radar, but the, the right was really nasty about the change to the Human Rights Act. Um, and there were really intense and scary attacks on Representative Lee Finke, who's the state's first transgender representative, as well as the commissioner of the Department of Human Rights, who was really championing the bill, receiving death threats and just really horrible, scary stuff. And all centered on the idea that they and the progressives in general were trying to, quote unquote, legalize pedophilia. And just to be clear, obviously, probably that's not what was happening, (laughs) but it was removing the in the definition this idea that you need to clarify that gay people, like you can be gay, but you can't be a pedophile. <laughs> so no, we don't need to do that. So that, but that was our law for a long time. Well, 1993, which yeah. itself was a compromise that Representative Karen Clark, angel icon, wonderful woman, the first out lesbian in the Minnesota legislature, she, she got the protections for trans people in the definition of sexual orientation and putting in that language is with a compromise to get it in there in the 90s. And so it is 30 years later, 1993 to 2023, and we're still having this fight. And like, I know the 90s are in, but like, they're not that in. We don't need to have these old fights. And so it is, it's highly expensive. And really, it's just like a tired, weird, gross argument. The amount of my colleagues who think about having sex with children is disturbing to me. And it's not it's not the people that they think it is. It's them. And so I, it's weird and gross and creepy and their obsession with children's genitals. And I, it's just, it's horrifying. And I'm really glad that we were able to get through that, but it was really gross. Yeah. Monica, I, I see you have company, but I wanted to see if you had anything else to add about the conversion therapy ban or some of the other legislation in this area we were involved with. Yeah, sure. So this is Giada. 
She's very excited about her book, Tiamo Baby, and and also seeing all of you. So she's very excited. So baby conversion therapy happened, and it's an issue that that Upfront Minnesota was working on for quite a few years. And it really, and Aaron makes way, you read that author of it when you're at the house, or when we worked really hard to just finally get it over and get it passed. And I think, again, it's one of those bills that is, is overview. A lot of other states have passed it. But what I think is so important about it is it really, again, with strengthening and changing and updating the Human Rights Act and then banning conversion therapy, it, again, we're moving to a different place than other states are, which is saying LGBTQ people, like, you are welcome here. We respect you. We see you. You are a part of our state. You're a part of our communities. And 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 we want to honor you too. And that's to me is so critical. I think the laws themselves passing are really critical to to move that work forward. And then it's also behind that comes the person who is 15 years old who's thinking about trying to come out and wondering if it's going to be okay for them. And that and that they know that Minnesota banned conversion therapy. I think really goes a long way to say we're not doing you know, what the other states are doing. There's, I don't, I tried to look at how many anti-LGBTQ laws there are. And I just was doing the like search of all of our partner organizations on the national level. And I've seen like anywhere from four to 500 anti-LGBTQ and over 300 that target trans people specifically. And a lot of those target trans youth. And so I just think about what can we continue to do in Minnesota to really, I think, be the state that is not like a refuge state, yes, but also a state that is proactively saying that LGBTQ people deserve love and respect and just as everyone else. And so, um, so I'm just really excited about where we can keep going. And I'm excited about Senator Makeface leadership and doing this. And, and I'll just say there's one other bill that's interesting that passed. There was some money that was appropriated to LGBTQ small businesses that fund and forum work done. And I think that'll be really fun to see where that's going as well and what kinds of new spaces and businesses could be supported by that. I that I think it's really important to acknowledge both the leadership that Monica and Megan have demonstrated in this state. Monica was at Offer Minnesota and part of the marriage equality and then marriage for all campaign. And Megan's been a gender justice for how you're like going on what's five, six, six years now and helping seven years and like the lawsuits that we have done to secure trans rights in schools or to clarify, I should say, because we've already had them. We said to clarify. And I appreciate the shout out, Monica, but this really is carrying a baton the last inch that like you two both helped to run the whole race. And you were like, could you just? And I just, I really want to shout that out because you two have been just incredible champions. And I always made the joke of the legislature, like I'm the first black mom in the Senate. And so like all kids are my kids now and you don't mess with black moms. And so I was happy to uh, to mama bear the legislation across the finish line, but it would not have gotten there without the work of you two. I feel like another one of those baton moments this session was paid family medical leave. And that was also a bill that our team worked on. And that was led by a black woman in the House, Representative Richardson. Megan, can you speak a little bit to our involvement in that bill and the coalition around that? Yeah, so that coalition was in place for 10 years. I had been working hard and gender justice's former board chair, Jeff Fitzpatrick, like literally wrote the bill and is probably the only person in the entire state 
who knows everything that it does and what all is in there. And we served on the steering committee this year because of some of the other priorities and just busy session it was. We weren't as involved, but we stayed really focused on making sure that there was an inclusive definition of family and the and who can benefit from the paid family medical leave benefit. I think the definition of the nuclear family and blood relation as what defines who should be able to be considered a caregiver or be able to take time off to care for someone is just very limiting and very rooted in Christian supremacy and all these things. We wanted to make sure that people who make their families differently, which is especially common amongst LGBTQ folks, are able to to still benefit from this program and have caregivers have paid time off to care, even if they're not blood related. And so that did make it in, into the program, which we're really happy about. Another area we had been working on, my understanding was this before my time with gender justice is the Women's Economic Security Act. Could you speak to how that was updated this year and what that means for gender equity? Yeah, so the Women's Economic Security Act first passed in 2014 and Lisa Stratton, one of the gender justice's co-founders, played a huge role in helping to craft that back in 2014 and help get it passed. And it's been great for our state. It provides a lot of protections in particular for Pregnant people, postnatal folks, people who are pumping milk at work and need accommodations related to pregnancy or pumping. And the issue was that when it first passed, it there was a definition of who it, what employers it applied to that I think it was 50 and up. Is that right, Aaron? Yes. And then it was moved to 20 and up or 50 yeah, and up. And this yeah. year it was moved to one. So you could be an employer of one and you still have to follow these laws. And isn't that just, just so arbitrary? It's, if you need to pump, you need to pump. It doesn't matter how big your employer is. I just don't, I don't That's get it. That's what I said in committee when someone asked me why. And I was like, because it turns out the size of your employer is in no way correlated for your need for pumping or nursing or pregnancy accommodation. Indeed. So it just, it basically just refines some, that's like a big deal, but it refines some of the other like definitions and the benefits. And so we're happy to see that happen there. I just will tell a little story in the house during a committee stop. One of the Republican legislators tried to mount uh, an offense against the bill and the women on the committee just ate him for what? They were just like, I'm sorry, have you ever been pregnant? I'm sorry, when was the last time I had to pump at work? And he just, he was like, my wife? And they were like, no. So I, to me, it was just one of those moments of what a difference it makes to have people representing us who are actually going through the experiences that more than half of Minnesotans experience usually at some point in their life. It was, yeah, it was a good, it was a good bill even just for those comedic moments at the Capitol. That was one of my favorite days as someone who pumped various places across the state in the past. Let's all turn next to the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. ERA Minnesota is part of the Unrestricted Minnesota Coalition. I know, Megan, you've been active in the coalition with the ERA as well. And my understanding is this, the bill passed some parts of the legislature, but not others, and wanted to touch base on that for folks. Yeah, so there were two ERA bills, one that was a resolution 
calling on Congress to move forward the federal ERA, and that passed and was fully completed. But the really big lift is around putting a constitutional amendment on Minnesota's ballot to amend the Minnesota Constitution and add an equal rights amendment. That unfortunately made it, didn't make it all the way to the, wouldn't have gone to the governor's desk technically. It only needs to go through both bodies. So it made it through the Senate, but not the House. And and so I know, and Suzanne's on this Zoom right now who leads ERA Minnesota. So I know everyone's regrouping to figure out about moving it forward next year. I think it's highly likely that it will move next session and then be on the ballot in 2024. And we also know that the likely opposition to the ERA will really focus on gender definitions and what it means for protections of trans people to add the ERA, because we're obviously seeing a broad national campaign and are anticipating that the national, the presidential election will be very defined by these attacks on trans people. And I think it'll be a vehicle for the opposition to use and to really try and focus on that in the campaign. And so we want to make sure that we're really ready to have it be successful, have the ERA be voted through by Minnesotans, which I think the polling is good on it, like it should happen. And also that it's an opportunity for us to do education and mobilization to really push back on this anti-trans rhetoric and strategy that the right is using. So that's part of what is very important for gender justice's involvement in looking at an ERA campaign for the ballot in 24. Thank you for that, Megan, because you've got a big picture of this. And what I was hearing is you get these updates is the ERA Constitution will provide protections that everything that's happened this session will get a greater protection in our Constitution. Because my fear is always, oh, and the other party comes in and rolls back a lot of the laws and protections that have been successful so far. And then it gives us a constitutional protection to be able to win those in the court systems. Even as things like when that Women's Economic Security Act, the gender issues, the trans, the the refuge, all of those stand to have a greater level of protection with a constitutional amendment. The key is we did this more extensive language from we got from Nevada last year that passed there, that we need all these groups, just like you mentioned, Megan, that will be on board because we will be hit with the abortion issue. This this will allow abortions free for all, that which isn't true. And also that trans and that there may be even more violence, backlash from protection, trying to get this protection. So I think for a lot of these, most of these protected class issues, it will be a good thing. And people will say, yeah, that's great. But we do expect backlash on abortion issues, trans issues, sports. Those are the ones we're hearing. And so we know that all means all people should have equal legal rights, but it will be working with our coalition partners to have a common message that will say, yes, and this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And maybe I could turn to Monica for a second on sort of organizing. I hear that you have done a lot of organizing in your time. And then this would maybe can take us looking at the time into questions from the group and also a couple of highlights of things that we're really looking forward to next session. 
So I worked on forming Minnesotans United for All Families, and it was at the time out front Minnesota in 515. I think a couple of things we learned from all of the states that had constitutional amendment ballots was that we tried to take the best learnings, which included having a really broad, big coalition, anticipating what the opposition is, but also living into what you want to see in the world. And we talked about how we always wanted to, even if we were going to lose forward at that time, every state passed a constitutional amendment against the freedom to marry for same-sex couples. So we wanted to lose forward. And what that meant was really investing in the field, getting, having this campaign that was like just so broad and big and full of all kinds of justice-loving people all over the state. And I think that helps us then to really build into the future that we want, which is one where people, Minnesotans know how to talk about abortion. They know how to talk about trans equity. They know how to really be able to just be really bold and out front about it. And uh, and that's what I think the opportunity is here that we all have. In the time that we have left, Megan and Erin, what are some bills that are on your list or top of your list that maybe didn't quite make it through this session before we turn to questions? We had a bill that would have uh, reformed the Positive Alternatives to Abortion Grant Program, which was created to fund crisis pregnancy centers, which are anti-abortion entities that exist to try and keep people from getting abortions. And so that Positive Pregnancy Support Act, that was called that bill, did not move forward. But the state funding for crisis pregnancy centers was zeroed out. So that program was pretty much shut down. Yes. So it's still a win. But we had some good language in our bill that was looking at if you're going to offer ultrasounds publicly, they need to be provided by a licensed and trained ultrasound tech. And and also some about if you are presenting yourselves publicly as some sort of a medical facility, then you need to treat the data you collect from your clients as patient data. So there were some pieces like that in that bill that we're interested in pulling out and looking at doing a kind of a standalone next year. Other just like options or opportunities for possibly helping to regulate or limit the scope of crisis pregnancy centers. Unfortunately, I do think we're going to need to fight to protect some of the wins we got this year. I've even heard rumors that Paid for medical leave might get refined further, maybe not in great ways. Nothing specific. Of course, lots of rumors. But I think that we just can't assume that it's like everything we got this year is just like safe and done forever. So I think there will be some defending our wins. And then there's one bill that we're super excited about, but just didn't have a lot of bandwidth to get very involved in. And it Unfortunately, it didn't pass this year, but I think maybe hopefully there's a road for it to pass next year. It is another one of Aaron's bills, but I swear we didn't plan it this way. And that is a bill that would require health insurance coverage of infertility services. And the really amazing progressive thing that it does that's different from other states, Massachusetts, for instance, does also require coverage of infertility services, is that it defines infertility as within your relationship, you cannot reproduce. So it's not just a technical medical definition of you tried, you had sperm and an egg and you tried for 12 months and you didn't get pregnant. That's the like medical definition. But that means for same-sex couples that it requires you to like pay out of pocket for a lot of reproductive technology support before you're considered quote unquote infertile and could maybe get some insurance support. So this would mean like you could get health insurance coverage for infertility services, fertility support 
also, even if you're like a single uh, person who wants to get pregnant, you wouldn't have to pay out of pocket for a year. And so that is really exciting and really, I think, goes a long way to advancing equity for LGBTQ families and single parents and people who don't fit the mold always of how we create our families. Let's open it up for questions. I see Allie has, you have your hand raised. You can come off mute or drop it in the chat. So my, my perennial question to you is, how can we support you better? Great question. <laughs> Thanks, Allie. Got one really important thing, honestly, is that legislators need to still hear from you even though session is over. And they, I think, and Aaron, you can confirm if this is true for you or not, but especially in a legislative session where so much got done and people really pushed hard to accomplish a lot. There's a potential, especially for those in districts where the races are a lot closer, to feel vulnerable now being back out into the world and talking to their constituents. And so they need to hear the love and support that exists and for it not to wait just until they're in their next campaign cycle. So definitely encourage thank yous to your legislators who did good things this session. Then get connected with us if I think all of you are on our list. And also, of course, your wonderful financial support of our work goes a long way to making all of this possible. We are a growing organization. We are in the process of expanding actually to North Dakota right now. And then probably next year, a little later into South Dakota. And so we're looking to see what of what we've been able to accomplish in Minnesota might translate into a state where the environment is a little bit more difficult and and but also take away the ability for the right to try out all their worst things in our neighbors' states and see which ones work. I think that if we at a minimum can make their job harder, it will help all of us everywhere in all of our places. But yes, your support literally helps make this advocacy possible here and in North Dakota coming next. What are some closing or, or thoughts on the session today? Maybe I'll start with who has a compliant listening baby. Maybe Senator Aaron McQuaid. Well, one, I think it's just really important for folks to know that like we didn't arrive at this place by accident or by happenstance. Like it took years of sustained organizing, of engagement, of involvement, of work that we get here. And so I like everyone deserves and is designed to have rest and you get that. And we have more to do. And so I think I would just want people to have a sense of sustainable energy around the work ahead. I'm just going to say it again, sustainable energy around the work ahead. We've thrown out the decks of some of the most emergent things, but now we have like preparation and the long-term growth and and like a vision ahead of what we can do and not just what we're protecting against. Monica. Sure, I'll keep it quick. So everything that Senator May Quaid said is amazing. Like we just have to keep going. And I think we have to keep building the amount of the number of people who are actively working for repro freedom and LGBTQ justice. So let's keep doing that. And then also come to the party and celebrate. Come to the unrestricted party. So that's next Thursday at Minneapolis Cider. Have you all heard about it? I hope so. Please come. Let's celebrate. Shade of Blowtorch, our DJ will be there. There'll be lots of really fun things to do. Uh, so yeah, I hope to see you there. That'll be fun. And thanks for all your work too. Thanks, thanks for everyone working for 
to make all this possible and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I just want to name because I see some of the faces here, too, that there were a lot of folks who were just hanging out at the Capitol like all day, every day as advocates and volunteers and activists. And thank you. Like, I feel like sometimes the Capitol is like a vortex. If I'm there, then it's like I can't leave. So there's some amount of just like weird inertia that happens. At the Capitol. But maybe it's FOMO. I don't know. But but it's just so hell- it was so nice to walk into committee meetings and see some of your faces in the gallery and like they're supporting our testifiers, especially people who are sharing personal stories. Having that support in the room is just so valuable. And thank you for that. And yeah, we're going to do some more next year and the year after that and the year after that. But it's real. it really feels good to now be in this place where we're not playing defense anymore. We went on offense. We got we cleared the decks a bit of all this all this stuff that had been piling up for a decade. And I'm looking forward to working with our partners and really figure out like what's our vision of expanded access and even more moving closer to justice and equity and liberation. What comes next? So thanks for being with us as we we all move towards that together. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to do this again. And my final word will be a plug for the Gender Justice Brief, our podcast, where I regularly get to talk to these wonderful people that we heard from today. So thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.